From one islander to another, Isle of Wight Radio proudly presents John Hannam Meets. Hi, and welcome to another John Hannah Meets. Today, I'm going back to December 2000, when I went to the Bournemouth Pavilion Theatre to interview the one and only Jeremy Beadle. So, it was certainly, look out, look out, Beadle's about. So, we're going back to that particular interview today. Another Hannum Archive. Jeremy, welcome to John Hannum Meets. Hi, thank you. Looking back on your life, you had a fantastic life. In a way, you're, you're lucky to be here because you were lucky to survive, weren't you, in, in, in your early days, Jeremy? Oh, yeah. I, uh, I, I was a blue baby, breech birth, everything that could be wrong, double pneumonia. I was in an oxygen tent uh, for, I think it was about the first month. I had Poland syndrome which meant that my fingers were joined. And uh, I was the recipient of a very, very early experimental uh, piece of surgery that separated my fingers. And although that they are stunted, I can still use them and hold them. And uh, to this day, I'm a patron of a, a charity called Reach that works for um, children with arm dis- deficiencies. Uh, and it's great because... A lot of people say, why do you work for Reach? And they don't even know that that I have got a deformed hand. And if you watch me on television, I'm, I gesticulate a lot. And I'm very visible and very open about it. And people don't see it. It's when you start to hide it, as children will do, that it becomes noticeable. And so I try to give them the confidence to rise above it. And I get hundreds of letters not from the children, but from concerned parents who say, well, what can I do? And I always write back and I said, it's not the size of the hand that's important, it's the size of the heart. And, it, and, and, and you fill them with, with confidence and the fact that they see that you know, I've had some success, that it gives them a lot of encouragement and it, and it really pleases me. It was tough for you because you were illegitimate as well, yeah. which oh, yes. made it even tougher, didn't it? Well, today, of course, illegitimacy is not even illegitimacy anymore. You're a single parent. Mm. So, you know, in, uh, when I was a kid in, in, in a post-war council estate, you were a bastard through and through. Um, so things haven't changed. But <laughs> it's, it, it was difficult. I mean, one doesn't go through the story... Uh, one doesn't understand the real situation. You were just illegitimate. Whereas today you are a single parent, you're given full rights. Uh, I have a company uh, that goes into schools, primary schools, called Cam Class, where instead of doing the school photograph, we video each child and interview them individually and put them all together as a, as a tape. And the interesting thing is that our interviewers are trained and never ask children about their mums or their dads because 50% of them will certainly be missing at least one. Mm. Uh, that the, the, the rule for most areas now is not uh, two parents and 2.4 children. Far from it. Um, it is single parents. But when I was a kid, being a, uh, having a mum who's a single parent, I mean, there was stigma attached. Um, but my mum is an extraordinary woman, brilliantly read, very cultured. She was very politically active. She did a lot of youth work, a lot of charity work. Um, you know, she, she rose above it. So 
somewhere along there uh, that one can actually go through history and look at the, the famous illegitimate children who became well-known, and there are a lot of them. But it doesn't carry today. Being single uh, doesn't carry the same problem. You could hypnotise people too, couldn't you? <laughs> oh, yeah, I did. I, used to, I mean, there was also this great mystery. I never quite understood it um, about hypnotism. And I used to hypnotise people as a kid. And I used to do all the tricks that the stage hypnotists do on kids at school. And they all used to think it was some, there was some mystery involved. And even, even the BMA didn't recognise hypnotism until 1955, even though it was discovered in the 18th century by Count Mesmer. Uh, Franz Mesmer, where, it's where we get the word mesmerise, um, who just used to literally hypnotise people. And they used to get them running around as chickens and um, doing strength acts and all the bits and pieces. And I used to do regression, um, which was quite fascinating because you could take people back and there are people who claim that you can go back pre-womb and you go back into history and... Uh, and they talk in untold tongues. <laughs> I never got that far, but I did get them back uh, to being very young. Jeremy Beadle, you were also asked to leave school, weren't you? Yes, um, yes, told, more <laughs> well, told, <yeah. laughs> yes. Um, I, when you get expelled from school, it, 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 it's become very um, vogue to have been uh, expelled from school. And it was something that I wasn't actually particularly proud of. I, I was relieved, to be honest. I was thoroughly bored at school. And I, I, I'd like to say that I got expelled for some massive prank, as everybody thinks I did. And it wasn't. It was a, it was a combination of lots and... I was a very poor student. I never did my homework, never arrived on time. I was bored out of my brains at school. Um, and, and I always used to take great heart from Winston Churchill, who was a dunce, considered a dunce at school. And when asked why... He said, because they, they never asked me anything I knew. And it was the same with me. I, I was extremely well read and I had quite good general knowledge, but uh, they could never interest me. I, as I say, it said earlier with camp class, I go into lots of schools and the way that kids are taught today is terrific. I think education is a very exciting field and I, I, I get very angry at the way that teachers are impoverished. I get very angry at the way that education is low on the list of priorities for many governments in the past. I'm pleased to see that the present government is, has put it as a very high priority. Uh, but in the past, if, if it didn't make a profit, then it was considered unimportant. Well, what better investment have you got than your children? Mm. Sorry, I'm... That's all right. Am I sounding like a, a political agitator? I don't mean to be like this. I'm just one of those little fat things that leaves out on old people and does nasty things. <laughs> you had some great jobs early on. You were a lorry driver, I know, selling yeah. advertising. You also worked for um, Morphe Richards, didn't I you? I did. I used to did make you? irons and kettles. Did you get sacked for taking I, your clothes off? I did. Well, I, yes, I did, actually. What, <laughs> what I, had, I used to play lots of jokes on the guys, and uh, we used to work quite long hours. You used to, your, your day was 12 hours. It was eight hours, and then compulsory four-hour over time and in fact without that overtime you you just wouldn't have got a wage and it was six days a week as well um and just to relieve the boredom i used to because we we're on assembly lines and lots of grubby jobs i used to do lots of pranks on them and on one occasion the guys decided to get their own back at the end of a 12-hour shift i mean you'd be covered in grime and dirt and you used to go in and you used to shower off in swafiga that Horrible oh, yeah. green jelly. And he used to cover the body and used to be in the showers and sing along and all the bit. 
Well, I'm in there chirping away, and suddenly I see these guys coming towards me like the dirty dozen, and I think, hello, there's something wrong here. And I managed to sort of dive between them, and I sort of scrummed my way through this melee, and I squirmed like an eel through everybody. And then I jumped out onto the factory floor and jumped up onto one of the um, assembly line desks. And I was sort of standing up there cheering, saying, you can't get me. And suddenly I heard this, and I turned behind me and I'd forgotten that the night shift had arrived. <laughs> and there were 500 women looking at this stark, naked, tadpole-like creature. Um, totally naked. They gave me the sack for it and then all the women got up a petition and so that instead they suspended me for three days. But the worst part about it was I had to go back through all those because <laughs> we arrived as the night shift were finishing in the morning <laughs> and I had to walk past and the, the comments I got were... That was that was my Morphe Richards adventure. You also cleaned some toilets in Germany, didn't you? I did clean some toilets in Germany. I uh, I was a toilet cleaner, and it, because you used to have to in those days have a work permit to be in the country to work, but you couldn't get a job without a work permit. So it was that catch twenty two situation. Um, and but anyway, I, I got this job, and I used to do lots of very very silly things. Um, some uh, you know. I used to lock the doors from the inside and put shoes at the bottom. Um, and um, uh, there, it, it, it did give rise to a, uh, a practical joke that I wanted to play on television. I never did. I've sold it around the world, but I've never played it myself. And that's to get um, do a, a false lavatory and put the gentleman's urinals a foot above normal height <laughs> and then make sure that all the other doors are locked and then they come in and they're going to see... Th- and guys, when they go to the toilet, walk in and they're unzipped and they're ready. They're not like women who go in for a chat. They're ready for action. So, and suddenly they realise that this urinal is, is sort of chest high. And I'd put a box and a pair of stepladders in either corner and just see how many guys would actually climb up. To uh, You know, anyway, so that I, I, I was a lavatory attendant. Yes, yes. You used to pull some pranks in telephone boxes too, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I... I worked uh, selling advertising space in the opposite. This was in Waterloo. It was literally 100 yards away from where Buster Ebb was, the great train robber, used to sell his newspapers. And we, um, underneath Waterloo Bridge there, we, but there was a telephone opposite. And I used to do these incredible, I mean, really silly stunts, but they were quite funny, whereby we got the number of the telephone and we were on the first floor opposite, across the road. And we would just ring and then passers-by would come and hear the phone and pick it up and then we would say you know i'm chalky white from the evening standard uh if you can grab me uh and say there are green hippopotamuses on a blue pair of eerie wigs you i want my 500 pounds or else just remember the line and then we see someone come down and say i am wearing a blue raincoat carrying a brown briefcase with a pink umbrella and of course that chap will well these people would run out to claim their 500 pounds and these people you know be lunatics. Um, I did lots of silly ones like that. Hi, Jill Blades. It's Nick Frisbee here saying John Hannum is a puppet. You did a bit with pop festivals, didn't you? Yeah, I was the first person to uh, use Wembley as a rock venue. Uh, I did a three-day rock and roll festival, a bit like the Isle of Wight. Mm. Um, uh, we did... Uh, I, I worked with the Fork Brothers, who were on the Isle of yes, Wight. Yes, they were. And we uh, had Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Bill Haley and the Comets, uh, all on the same bill. 
uh, at Wembley Stadium. Uh, it was a, an incredible event, the first time that, that Wembley had been used. Uh, and when I did a, a, another festival, which was up in uh, Lancashire, in Bickershaw, we had Grateful Dead, Captain Beefheart, Dr. John, New Riders of the Purple Sage, a very West Coast American sound. And that was a three-day washout. Um, but funny enough, uh, uh, 25 years after the event, uh, one of the big trendy magazines did a big eight-page supplement on it. And everybody remembered it with huge affection. And I was, I was amazing because it was it poured for three days. I know little Richard overran and Chuck Berry wasn't too happy. Oh, <laughs> did. Little Richard, oh, uh, this was at the Wembley Rock and yeah. Roll show. Uh, the crowd were very enthusiastic and little Richard got very, he, he just ran over, simply. And uh, Chuck Berry was cursing him, absolutely cursing him in the wings. And he was, you know, really waiting to get on because he wanted to leave. Uh, anyway, uh, little Richard finally finished and Chuck Berry said to me, right, take me down, I want to talk to the so-and-so. <laughs> So I said, well, you know, you've got to go on. He said, take me down. Oh, dear. So I took him down. And he went in. And I can't use the language, but it's, it's expletive, deletive, expletive, deletive. If you ever do that to me, you expletive, deletive. I shall expletive, deletive. You're, and I'm going to... Well, and, and, and meanwhile, there's 80,000 people chanting for him to come upstairs. And he came out and all smiles on the stage and, and, and did a set to die for. They wanted to pull the plugs because we were running over. And eventually we just said, look, you pull the plugs. You're the one that's going to be responsible for the riot that's going to occur. It's all very well you saying, you know, you've run over. Well, you tell that to 80,000 people who've paid their money and are waiting. Telling me. What I like about you is you were a skint mini cab driver. Really, oh, yeah. Really hard up, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. And then just a stroke of luck, really, wasn't it? Because you're a man that collects everything, sort of funny sayings and I, whatever. I've always, I've, I've always been... Rather well read. I'm pretty boring. I, You've got 20,000 books, haven't you? Yeah, well, I've coloured most of them in, but it's, uh, <laughs> I, I have got a few books that I... But I, I really enjoy finding out. You know, my education began when I began travelling. The only thing I can remember that I actually learned at school was Pythagoras' theorem, and I've yet to put it into practice, and I've yet to impress anybody in a bar. But I always think that the best education you can have is either travelling or an older woman. And I think the combination of the two uh, puts you instead for the rest of your life. And it's... Um, so my sentimental education consisted of Miles uh, uh, and some very, very lovely ladies who I learned a lot from. Celebrity Squares was a pretty good start for you because you did a bit for Bob Monkhouse. Yeah, I wrote... Uh, Bob's fantastic. I mean, uh, there are many people in the business whether they care to admit it or not, who really do owe their start to Bob. A very generous man, and a, a great icon amongst professionals as, as the great comedian. Uh, what I did for him was I wrote 100 questions for Celebrity Squares, which, if you remember the programme, the questions were meant to be a feed for a joke, uh, but they were also meant to be a, a ridiculous answer, and then with a tag. And so I wrote 100 of these, but I didn't send in the answers. And uh, he sent me a handwritten letter back, got in touch, and I joined the team on Celebrity Squares. So, and you did LBC for 30 quid on a Sunday night? Yeah, did LBC, uh, the Looney Beetle Club, <laughs> um, which I, again, got the sack from. And nearly all, my, nearly all my jobs I got the sack from, and including radio. I was pretty outrageous on radio. I wasn't... 
I never swore, uh, and I wasn't as salacious, and I and, and I wasn't dirty. I I was, I used verbal gymnastics rather than pretty in your face vulgarity. And I love vulgarity, but I, as a a verbal engineer, I prefer pictures to just uh, simple bad language. It's all very well being able to shock people. But I, uh, I did lots of pranks. Uh, I, I used to do uh, what's it called Beat Beetle, whereas if you could ask me a quiz question that I couldn't answer, then you won a pencil. <laughs> and so, you know, people would ring in and they'd ask me a question. Now, if I could answer it, I'd sort of say, well, hey, well, what a good question. What a fantastic... What's your... Brilliant. If they asked me a question I didn't know the answer to, I'd say, what's your source? What a stupid question. Who cares? That's boring. <laughs> And I got away with it for, you know, like months and months and months. But eventually they gave me the sack. A few riots outside the studio. Oh, yeah, I did, uh, I, <laughs> I did a few hoaxes. Well, hoaxes are slightly different from just silly phone calls. A lot of people do silly phone calls, and they're very funny, and I do admire them. But I, I engineered hoaxes, for example. Uh, I convinced people in the same way that we're left and right-handed, we're also left and right-eared, and I did a whole series of tests to the listeners to convince them whether they were left or right-eared, dominant. And I said it was important because um, record companies note that in certain areas, if you're left-eared dominant, if they put a left-eared dominant record out, it will sell better in that area. So that they were recording some, the same song, left-eared dominant and right-eared dominant, depending on what area, and they said, all a load of nonsense. But there was enough. Uh, plausibility in it after I did the test which was to convince people I say now to the audience I want you to cover you try it now if you're listening just cover one ear and it doesn't matter which one okay cover it now listen to what I'm saying listen to the length that I'm saying it okay just imagine if it, if it was a needle where would it be on the scale yes okay got it right uncover the ear now cover the other ear now listen to what I'm saying. And all I did was get closer to the microphone. And I would say, and that's your dominant ear, whichever ear you heard better with. Well, we spent three hours of people ringing in telling us that they were left ear dominant, right footed and short sighted. <laughs> and well, it was hysterical. On another occasion, I, I convinced people that we were traveling around London and if they could locate me, they, they won a, 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 a tracksuit. And it was all done from the studio with sound effects. Uh, and it was a three-hour show late at night. And by quarter to one in the morning, uh, traffic police arrived. And they said, uh, have you been out in the Gough Square? We actually caused a huge traffic congestion in the middle of the night at Hyde Park's corner because hundreds of people have been listening to the clues and worked out that it must be around Hyde Park Corner. And they were on roller skates, scooters, mopeds, cars, bikes. Uh, they were on everything. And then they realised that it was a hoax. And then they all battled their way down to the studios in Gough Square. And we had to give them hundreds of giveaways to appease them. Put that light out! I'm trying to relax and listen to John Hannum. We must talk about your fantastic hit TV shows, number one shows. Oh. Going for a laugh. Watch out, Beatles, about you being framed. You've been framed. You had about 40,000 tapes. Oh, a year. A year. Oh, yes. And we had uh, people whose sole job it was was to view the tapes. It was, um, it was a very good show. The, the, the genesis of the show is quite fascinating because I did a show for LWT called People Do the Funniest Things and it got, 
It got 17 million viewers, but it, it showed outtakes, and Dennis Norden complained that it was too similar to It's All Right in the Night, which I thought was slightly unkind, because only about 20% of the clips were outtakes. But one of the shows that I bought was a Japanese show of uh, Cam Called a Calamities, Home Video Howlers. And, I, and they said to me, look, we've got to take this off, but what, what would you like to do instead? And I said, well, I'd like to develop this show. And it was a time that LWT was bidding for its new franchise, or renewal of its franchise, and it didn't want another clip show, and it certainly didn't want what it judged to be would be yet another foreign clip show. And I tried, I tried for a year and I couldn't sell it, so in the end I relinquished the rights. A man in America called Vin De Bono bought the rights, made a, a show called America's Funniest Home Videos, it went to number one, then Action Time, which is a company that I used to be, um, bought the rights. They made a pilot in Granada with Richard Maidley. It didn't really work, so then they called me in to make it work as a consultant, and I turned the whole thing round. And then we transmitted the pilot that I made, and the rest, as they say... Amazing. 30,000 letters you used to get on some of your shows, oh, oh, yeah, and Beatles about. You've got yeah. hundreds... You know, literally hundreds of thousands of letters. I mean, possibly, I, yeah, you know, I'm often asked what's, what was the best stunt I ever did, and, uh, and I always say it was the alien that we did very near here uh, on Janet Elford, uh, where we landed a meteorite in the back garden, and she was, she was a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful person, uh, and it was a huge stunt. She became a hero. You know, everybody has always said what a wonderful person she must be, and she is. She was just a lovely, lovely person. And it was just a great stunt. You take an awful lot of stick from the press, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. There was a, a rather stupid thing they said about you, the second most unpopular person. Next to Saddam Hussein, and yeah. only, There was only about 200 people voted, weren't there? Well, that was the thing, you see. It's, it, one of the techniques, if you want to get publicity, is to create a negative. So if, for example, if you've got a band that you want to sell, what you do is you get the record band, B-A-N-N-E-D, uh, and of course it's not banned at all, but you, and therefore it hits the papers and everybody then wants to listen to it and that's the way that you, you promote. If you create a negative, so now I can actually use statistics and there have been several books called How to Lie with Statistics to prove anything. Now, for instance, on that uh, list which actually caused me an enormous problem, uh, a serious problem for many years, uh, it was Saddam Hussein, then... Jonathan Ross, Terry Wogan, and Margaret Thatcher. Oh, I, think it was it? A, I think it was only a couple of people. Anyway, there were oh, only four or something. And they only asked something like 200 people. And of course, but it, and it went into Punch magazine as a joke. And then it got lifted into the real, into the real world. And suddenly, I, I, you know, I lived that. I tell you what I don't like. I don't mind the abuse. It's the lies and the distortions and misinformation. Uh, and, and I'm afraid that the, it, it is out of control. There aren't proper controls. Um, that when you, I used to do a thing on radio called If It's Not True, It Should Be. And what we used to do was to take any paper. I used to get people to ring in and say, right, give me a paper. Then I'd say to another person, give me a page number. And then I'd say to another person, which story? And we would research the story live on air. And in all the times I did it, it was never accurate. <laughs> You've had a fantastic life, ringmaster for Jerry Cotton oh, for about nine years. I, I love the circus. Yeah. I love the circus. It's, 
And I love fairground people. Uh, I love show people. That they, I, I always try to teach people who want to go into television, go to live entertainment. Uh, and by live entertainment, I mean your bingo, I mean your karaoke nights, I mean the pantomime, I mean the circus, I mean the fun fair, uh, I mean the quizzes. Go to them. This is the real world. It isn't arty-farty stuff. It, it's, it's people are very easily entertained, but you've got to give them what they want. And, you know, sometimes in television we sit in cloud cuckoo land and we think we know what they want. Well, I'm sorry, I, I, I often beg to differ. And unfortunately, that if you look, uh, you will, despite everything that they say, that the figures are falling. I think, I think it's a social thing that people are no longer mesmerised by the television. They do want to go out, they do want live entertainment. But I think it's also that sometimes we can get too clever with the stuff. Congratulations on a great career. You create shows, you've got your own companies. You, you never stop, do you? No, I'm, I'm just doing... Um, you've got to uh, do a crossword in a minute. Well, no, I'm doing the Times, the Times newspaper, the, uh, the Christmas quiz. I've, yeah. written, I've compiled the Christmas quiz. You haven't That's finished it yet, No, you? I've got a deadline. I've got to catch that. I'm just in the middle of writing the guidebook for Madame Tussauds because their souvenir brochure is beautiful. It's for colour and very lovely, but it doesn't really tell you much about the figures. And I used to be a tour guide. I'm a qualified tour guide, and I always... I used to take people around and people never knew what they were looking at. And so they've accepted it. It's called The Gossip's Guide and it's, um, it's, I'm really enjoying writing that. But again, I've got deadlines on that. Congratulations on the money you've raised for Reach Charity. It's been terrific and I know it's mm. dear to your heart. Yeah, no, I've, uh, that, I, I, I do Children with Leukaemia, I do Norwood Ravenswood, I do Vision, I, I do quite a few charities. I, someone once said to me that charity is the rent you pay on earth. And I've always thought that's a wonderful guideline. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be secular. I think it says it all. I, I used to look after an old lady who was about 70. She was an extraordinary woman. And I used to take her. We had a club in Soho for 10 years. And I used to take her around all the clubs. I used to know all the club owners. And she was a very frail, almost a bit like Edith Piaf, very small and frail, 70 years old. And I used to take her around to all these outrageous clubs. And her philosophy in life, and I, 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 I told a reporter once this, and he took, really took the mickey out of it, and I thought it would tell me more about him than her. Her philosophy in life was based on Pinocchio and Mary Poppins, but it works. And it said, let your conscience be your guide and feed the birds every day. And for a man lucky to survive being born, you've done awfully well, really. I've been very lucky. Happy New Year, Jeremy. And a very happy New Year to all your listeners. And sorry I overran, but you'll forgive me, won't you? <laughs> of course. It's great. He's got a swell personality. He meets and greets the stars with such amenity. Good enough to make you coming out of the street. John Hanami. That's right. Such happy memories there of an interview I did with Jeremy Beadle in Bournemouth right back in 2000. What a lovely man. After the interview, we had a quick chat and he said, what do you do with all your old interviews? I said, well, I've got every one. He said, well, what you ought to do is to put them onto a CD and sell them. So I thought, well, I'll try. 
so I brought one out called the John Hannam Archives, Volume 1, which included people like Sir John Mills, Tommy Cooper, Adam Faith, Hugh Lloyd, Roddy Hilton, and it went on sale and it sold out. That was all due to the wonderful Jeremy Beadle. And of course, since then, I've written books about my interviews with the stars, and uh, I like to think uh, he was in there somewhere too. It's hard to believe, sadly, Jeremy died right back in 2008, 14 years ago. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye for now. Sweet man. Oh. Who was he again, dear? John. John. Yes. Yes, John. Just John. Hannum. Was it? Yes. Yes. Exactly. So. Yes. What does he do? He talks to people like you and me, dear. Oh, I see. Mm. Yes.